Part two, chapter nine of Mountains in the Mist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio. InterfaceAudio.com. Mountains in the Mist by Frank W. Borum. Nine. The Analyst. We are all born analysts and we quickly get to work. The passion for scientific investigation begins in the cradle. A child glories in taking things to pieces. He is always at it. He will take a clock to pieces to find the thing that is forever ticking. He will take an instrument to pieces to find the music. He will take a flower to pieces to find the fragrance. He will take his mechanical toys to pieces to find what makes them go he would take his mother to pieces if he could to find where all the love and sweetness come from those who have no eye for beauty will mutter a lot of commonplace nonsense about his bump of destructiveness having been abnormally developed it is not destructiveness at all when he discovers that his investigation has destroyed the very thing that he was fondly investigating he will weep over its ruin nothing was further from his thought he is not a born iconoclast, but a born analyst, that is all. His passionate propensity is the scientific yearning to resolve a substance into its original elements, to ascertain its component parts, to reveal its ingredients, to take it to pieces. And though he should live to be as old as Methuselah, he will never quite escape from that analytical propensity. Indeed, it may grow upon him and as in the nursery it often led him to the ruin of his best-loved toys so in later life his insatiable craving for taking things to pieces will beguile him into many sorrows before it has done with him let us trace the thing a little but we must not yet say good-bye to the child in his cot watch him he cries and crows and chuckles and squeals the causes of his antics and grimaces are among the things that are not dreamed of in our philosophy. And yet what if he is wrestling with some profound analytical problem? What if the young chemist is already in his wonderful laboratory, and is hard at work at his task of taking the universe to pieces? See? He scratches at his cot and he laughs. He pokes at the counterpane and crows in his furious glee. In his delicious merriment he flings his feet into the air and chuckles audibly. And as the pair of pink pillars appear before his delighted gaze, he scratches at them with all his might and main, and then he screams, as if the foundations of the world had been suddenly shaken. You are amazed at his incredible stupidity in scratching himself, and in straightway crying because it hurts. But what if the incredible stupidity be yours and not his? what if he be absorbed in an analytical experiment for experiments in a laboratory are never unattended by some risk see he has now divided the entire universe into two parts he has discovered that there is an essential difference between the cot and the counterpane on one hand and the pretty pair of chubby pink pillars on the other he finds as a result of his elaborate experiments that certain things make up the eye of this life and must on no account be scratched and that certain other things make up the not eye and may be scratched without pain later on he will pass from this to purely physical analysis of eye and not eye 
to the purely ethical dissection of the mine and not mine and still later his hungry mind will invade and dissect a still more wonderful world he will pick up let us say matthew arnold's literature and dogma and sitting at the feet of the brilliant oxford professor he will learn to make a new analysis for says arnold all scientific religion amounts in the last resort to a clear distinction between the ourselves and the not ourselves for here dwelling within the very body that we scratched in the cradle is a power not ourselves that makes for righteousness and that power is god god in us and when he gets as far as this our young analyst has begun to take the universe to pieces to some purpose and yet at this very point his knowledge will lead him into mischief knowledge always does knowledge is like a lie a lie requires another lie to cover it and my knowledge requires still more knowledge to teach me how to use it it is of no use teaching a child how to handle a knife and how to wield a pen if you leave it at this you will find him celebrating his knowledge of cutlery and calligraphy by carving his name on the dining-room table you must teach him how to use the knowledge you have already given him in the same way the inborn faculty of analysis must be educated or it will play some cruel pranks with him history affords a shocking example about three hundred years before christ a young analyst sprang into existence at alexandria euclid by name most school-children have heard of him he spent a good deal of his time in taking things to pieces triangles squares and curves and at last he actually committed himself to this amazing fallacy the whole he said is equal to the sum of all its parts it is a fearful thing when the passion for analysis leads a man into so grave a heresy as this the whole is equal to the sum of all its parts could anything be more absurd take paradise lost or hamlet or in memoriam to pieces on this principle and you will find that the great classic simply consists of the twenty-six letters of the alphabet in an endless variety of juxtaposition and would euclid have us believe that the whole of hamlet is only equal to the twenty-six letters of the alphabet it has often been pointed out that in gray's elegy there is scarcely a thought that rises above mediocrity and yet the combination and sequence and rhythm of the whole are such that we have all recognized it as one of the choicest gems of our literature the entire poem is infinitely greater than the sum of all its parts or think of tennyson's brook with its deeps and shallows its whirls and its eddies its song and its chatter its foamy flake and its silvery flash its graceful windings among ferns and forget-me-nots its haunts of trout and of grayling now the analyst who has not been warned of the peril of dissection will take all this to pieces and he will tell you that it consists of two parts of hydrogen to sixteen parts of oxygen if you hear the wildest statement often enough you will come at last to believe it and this young analyst has read euclid's axiom so frequently that he has really come at last to fancy that it is true the whole of the brook equal to the sum of all its parts the whole equal to hydrogen and oxygen let our analyst read the poem and see does a lovely tune consist merely of so many notes we are irresistibly reminded of balthazar the infatuated chemist in balzac's quest for the absolute his poor wife is in an agony of apprehension on his account and she frets and worries about his perilous experiments 
she seeks with passionate entreaty to dissuade him as he looks into her face he notices that her beautiful eyes are swimming in tears ah exclaims the analyst tears tears well i have decomposed them they contain a little phosphate of lime a little chloride of sodium a little mucus and a little water now i happen to know for certain that neither euclid nor balzac's chemist nor all the cold-blooded philosophers in the universe could ever persuade any husband or lover in the wide wide world that a woman's tears contain nothing more than these constituent elements it is another of those common cases in which the whole is greater beyond all calculation than the sum of all its parts i wonder that it never occurs to such analysts as these to ask themselves this pertinent question if a whole contains no more than the sum of all its parts why should either god or man take the trouble to transform the parts into a whole it would be love's labor lost with a vengeance but after all the analyst will not do very much harm in the world unless he starts to take himself to pieces if he confines his attention to poems and books and tunes and tears he may miss a vast amount of beauty and pathos and music and romance but he may survive that the wreck will not be total but when he begins to take himself to pieces he will make a tragic mess of things unless he knows exactly how to go about it here for example is an extract from the practical druggist it tells us that an average man is made up of so much iron so much phosphate so much salt so much gas so much water and so on now does anyone feel that this is quite satisfactory is this man is the whole only equal to the sum of all its parts where does consciousness come in and conscience and passion and love and hate and everything that makes me me and is your analyst much nearer to the truth when he dissects himself another way and says that he consists of spirit and soul and body i think not i have noticed something about the body which is wonderfully spiritual and something about the spirit which is woefully carnal the analysis is very crude i prefer to take myself as i am a whole which is very much greater than the sum of all its parts and to cry with Bayman, the mystic only when i know god shall i know myself here then we have a most extraordinary phenomenon we are analysts from our cradles yet we never excel at it it is the one thing we begin to do as soon as we are born and we are still doing it very clumsily and very badly when the time comes to die we look around us and we divide things in general into things sacred and things secular what could be more stilted more unnatural more artificial as though to a secular mind anything could be sacred as though to a saintly soul anything could be secular we divide our fellow mortals into saints and sinners but we often suspect our own analysis we find ourselves gazing in admiration at the saintliness of some sinners and we find ourselves in grief at the sinfulness of some saints we turn from things around to things within and soon find ourselves in the same confusion chesterton says that the battle of the future is the battle between the telescope and the microscope he is mistaken the battle of the future is between the telescope and the stethoscope and in that fight the telescope must win it was fashionable once upon a time for most excellent and devout people to spend half their time with the stethoscope in awful introspection 
and analysis. Such self-examination has its place, but it has been sadly overdone. I prefer to lay down the stethoscope and take up the telescope. Looking off unto Jesus, says a wonderful writer who points out this more excellent way, it is so very difficult to analyze the soul and to dissect the good from the bad. I like to think of that great and gracious covenanter, David Dixon, professor of theology in Glasgow University. When he lay dying, he attempted to analyze his inmost self, but he soon abandoned the attempt. Then, turning to his bosom friend, John Livingstone, who sat beside his deathbed, he said, I have taken them all, all my good deeds and all my bad deeds, and have cast them all together in a heap before the Lord. I have fled from both of them to Jesus, and in him I have sweet peace. It was beautifully and bravely spoken. That is the last word in analytical science. End of Part 2, Chapter 9 Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com